Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty, hosted by Jody Katz, founder and creative director of Base Beauty Creative Agency. Hey, everybody, it's Jody Katz, your host of Where Brains Meet Beauty podcast. I'm excited to share this episode with Gwen Jameer. She is the CEO and founder of Naturalicious. And if you missed last week's episode, it featured Steve Weigler, who is the CEO and founder of Emerge Council. Thanks for listening. Hey, everybody. I am so excited to be joined with Gwen Jameer. She is the founder of Naturalicious. Welcome to Where Brains Meet Beauty. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be here today. And we're recording over Zoom because we are still in you know, COVID quarantine. Um, I'm in New Jersey today. Where are you? I'm in Michigan. So, um, you know, our fans can't see this because they're just listening, but you have this awesome purple wall behind you. It feels very Instagrammable. It's purple <laughs> and it has like pretty green potted plants behind you and like bronze like holders. It's very, very social media worthy. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I put some put some effort into it. Um, so I, I'm so excited to have you on the show and I want to start, um, with this question. I think I told you it's one of my favorite questions. Mm-hmm. What did you want to be when you would grow up? What did I want to be when I grew up? Mm-hmm. Oh, I wanted to be a singer. Well, it, there was two parts. So in my younger years, when I was, you know, like between four and like nine or so, I wanted to be a singer and a dancer. And I had a whole strategy and a whole plan for how I was going to get there. I was going to start out (laughs) by being a a backup singer for Whitney Houston. And I was going to be a backup dancer for Janet Jackson. And that's, I was going to moonlight doing that. Somehow I knew the term moonlight when I was like five, but I was going to do that. And then I was going to use that, you know, experience to get my feet wet on stage, traveling and touring. And then I was going to go off into the stratosphere and be this amazing rock star woman. So that was my plan. (laughs) It sounds like a good plan. Were were you a good singer and a good dancer at the time? Uh, Yeah. I I mean, I don't remember how well I sang when I was that young, but in my mind, I was a good singer. I'm a good singer now, but you know, little kids' voices are kind of hit or miss when it comes to singing. So for all I know, I could have sounded extremely screechy and annoying, but I thought I sounded fantastic. So you could not tell me that I was not going to to do that at that time. And um, yeah. when did your dreams of becoming a singer-dancer transition into a different field? I was about, I would say about early middle school, like sixth grade-ish. Um, I decided that I was going to be a neurosurgeon. So obviously like a way different <laughs> vibe, totally different side of things. Um, to decide I was going to be a neurosurgeon. And as I look back on it now, I don't know that I actually wanted to be a neurosurgeon. I think I just really liked the validation that I got from adults when I said that I wanted to be a neurosurgeon. So my my passion, my dream when I was a little kid was really to be a singer and a dancer. And then when I got older, I think I started to learn, um, you know, the the way that people react to you when you say certain things or when you act a certain way. And everyone wants to you know, approval of their parents. And so I never struggled for that. My parents were amazing. I had great parents. But when I said I was going to be a neurosurgeon, um, they were so excited and so proud to like share that with everyone. And I think it really stemmed from, I did a 
like a science project one year and my mom helped me with my science project. I think I was in sixth grade and I did it on the brain and I also somehow did it on genetics at the same time. And I, I was really interested in it, but I don't think I actually truly wanted to, <laughs> to do brain surgery. But I got interested in biology and things like that. And I started to talk about wanting to be a brain surgeon one day. And, you know, it, it was something that people, adults really approved of highly. Um, but I'm, I'm really glad that as I got older, I started to kind of venture out and do the things that truly break, brought me joy. And that's what I'm doing right now. So not a singer and a dancer, <laughs> although I did have when I was like 20, like 19 to 21 or 22, I did have a demo tape um, and I did well demo CD and I had a whole I had a manager. I was I had gotten back into that that passion, that dream of, you know, being a singer and a dancer. But I. Oh, my goodness. Wow. Okay, yeah, wait, 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 wait. We have to back up. I didn't know this. So you <laughs> created your own music and to the point where you had a manager and you're, I guess, I like seeking a deal. Is this right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I did. and But it was short-lived because um, I got the opportunity to kind of go on like a mini tour <laughs> at one point. And I realized very quickly that I did not enjoy singing the same things every night or every day, um, like kind of like the grueling like tour schedule that you always hear artists, like major artists talk about. It just wasn't my jam. I was like, I don't like this at all. I didn't even really like singing and trying to dance at the same time. Like, I don't think anybody realizes how hard that truly is. I look at artists now on TV, like the Grammys and things, and I'm like, you know, these people are insane. They are somehow in their mind choreographing the song with the movements and sometimes they're not even looking at the other dancers behind them and it's a whole art to it and uh, it's, it's it's really really challenging and difficult and I just found I didn't enjoy that so I was like you know what I'm gonna stick to being a shower singer and a car singer and um, I got kind of morphed into this beauty world where I am today and I am in full alignment with what I'm supposed to be doing I'm, I love what I do no, no day feels like work um so I'm glad I got the experience. You know, it's better to have done it and say, you know, but they always say better an oops than a what if. And uh, I'm so glad that I did that. And I have those stories to share and I had that experience, but I, I'm loving what I do right now. Okay, this is just really cool though. Like you have a dream as a five-year-old to be a singer mm -hmm. and a backup dancer. And then you became yeah. a singer and a backup dancer. Like that's... Well, know, I, was a, I didn't backup dance. I was doing my own dancing. So I actually right. didn't get to do the backup dancing. <laughs> Well, you but, made, you made but, it there, I know, and I, I think did. that is, um, you know, a lot of people are never able to push forward to have their dreams come true, and yep. um, it's so incredible to hear that that happened for you because that's a big, that's a lofty dream, right, to get on yeah. stage and perform for people, um, yeah. and you know, kudos to you also for seeing that like it wasn't right for you and that you could pivot, and you know, that's really hard for people, right? They think like my whole life I wanted to do this now I don't like it. Should I just stick with it, right? It's it's hard to um to go out in the world and be um have the confidence to change your mind. Absolutely, yeah. Thank you. I, I feel super proud of myself now. Yeah, you should. <laughs> I never thought about it like that. Well, I mean, think about how many, I mean, I have friends, you know, in high school, they knew they wanted to be X, Y, Z, right? Or like in mm -hmm. junior high, they wanted to be X, Y, Z. And then you meet them in, a, in their 40s, they're like, I hate this, right? And mm. they don't, they don't give themselves permission to say, you know what, like I did it, but it's not right for me anymore. Um, there's yeah. so much, I think, society pressure 
um, on people to like, well, you said you're going to do this, so just do it. Well, it's okay to try it and not like it, whether it's not liking it for one year or 10 years or 20 years. Right. Um, well, I want to, I want to, I know we were going to get to beauty, but I, I do want to acknowledge the fact that you told me that you started college in the 11th grade when you're 16 years old, which yeah. is crazy amazing. Can you just like <laughs> tell us like what was happening in your life? Because that's, um, you know, we talk about like appealing to Gen Z and like whoever the next Gen Z is after them. Like you were, yeah. you were in this, like this vortex of being one group and another group at the same time. Yeah, so I'll share a little bit of the story. So I started um, college when I was in 11th grade. So I know some people, they like graduate from high school early and then they'll just go to college. But I was doing both. So I was in 11th grade for like half the day. And then the other half the day, I would go to college. And I would literally go to a college campus that was local um, in my area. And I did the same thing in 12th grade. And so by the time I actually like graduated high school and started real college, I was already like a junior because I already done two years of college. And so when I was in 11th grade and I was going to college, there was, uh, I just remember walking into this classroom and there was this guy and I just thought he was so hot and so cute. Just, I don't know. He had these like, in my, in the, in retrospect, he had these like stupid blue glasses, like sunglasses on the inside of a classroom. And they did, it made no sense to wear these. But I thought he looked awesome in them. And so I decided that he was going to be mine. And there was no, like, stopping me. But I'm also, um, I've also been kind of raised that, you know, men um, pursue women, right? And so it was like, well, I, I really want this guy, but I can't, like, let him know. So I've got to, like, position myself so that he can get to me, right? <laughs> so I ended up realizing that I was in the wrong classroom, and so <laughs> that wasn't even my class, but he was his, he was a freshman. And so I'm in 11th grade. I never told him that I was actually in high school. And he just thought I started school like in the afternoon. Cause you know, in college you can make your own schedule kind of thing. Right. So he just thought I'd just schedule my classes in the afternoon. And so I, I ended up like sitting in that classroom, even though it was the wrong classroom, <laughs> oh, I ended awesome. up sitting in that classroom like very strategically, like slightly in front of him, but still kind of sort of next to him um, so that he could see me. And, you know, next thing I knew, you know, over the course of a couple, probably like a two weeks or so, he was my boyfriend. And so <laughs> I never, ever, t even to this day, he does not know that at that time I was in high school. And so I got, he was already in college. So I got to be really good friends with his friends who were also at the same college. And so we all hung out in this little crew in the lunchroom and did all these, you know, fun things together. Never told them that I was in high school because I didn't want them to think I was lame, you know? <laughs> so I didn't say, hey, by the way, I'm only like 16 and I'm still, you know, I got to go to high school for the first half of the day. Um, but I yeah, that was... When that, I think this has the, ma the makings of an incredible teen movie. Yeah. You know, um, this idea that, you know, you're in, in the high school world and the college world and these friends don't know about those friends. It's it's really um, fascinating. And I wonder yeah. if he um, is listening now to hear I don't the know. Truth. I ended up, because um, I was 16 at the time. And so, you know, back, at least for me, like a year long relationship was like a lifetime back then, you know? And so I think we, I dated him for like, I don't know, at nine months or something like that. It wasn't like a super long time, but I just remember breaking up with him because he, um, he wanted me to convert to whatever religion he was on. I think he was like Seventh-day Adventist and he was very like 
into his church, which is great, you know, but I wasn't, you know, and so I just felt like, bro, I'm 16. Like, you're asking me for life decisions at 16. And he was talking about marriage. And I was like, this has gotten way too, it's gone way too far. And so <laughs> I'm like, I'm 16 years old. In my mind, I'm still in high school. I'm not interested in marrying you. I just thought you were hot. And, you know, anyway, so I ended up breaking up with him. And he was really upset with me for years. He was, I remember... Just like around the time when like Facebook was first kind of starting. So I remember he went online and he like posted this whole thing with like a picture of me with like a cross. <gasps> oh <laughs> on man. It. Like, you know, like the like a um like like a do like, not enter. Like, yeah, like uh-huh. basically he's like, she'll break your heart. <laughs> just like, oh my God. Aww. I'm in high school, you know, like relax, you know. This, so anyway, yeah, this is such a, a good little story. too serious. I mean, um, when you have some free time, write the screenplay, write the novel. Yeah, um, uh, you don't have to use your name, but this, these these stories, these characters need to um, get out in the world. It's that's amazing. a great that's you know you're so right, and I I never even thought about that until we had our conversation. But yeah, I think I might actually pursue that in some yeah. free time. <laughs> so um, let's jump ahead um, out of your high school slash college world. Um, yeah. Beauty. When when did beauty as a career come into your life? Uh, it was really a necessity. I was not the girl who was always wearing makeup and had, like, the awesome hair that kids wanted to play with on re- at recess. Like, that wasn't me. Um, even my dad, my parents are a little bit older. They had me when they were, like, in their 40s. And my dad was always, even when I got into, like, the phase of wanting to wear makeup, like, in middle school, he's like, why do you have all that stuff on your face? You don't need all that stuff, you know? So it was always, like, you know, you don't need it. And my parents really instilled a lot of, like, self-confidence in me uh, when I was younger, before, like, the world got to me and, you know, how they, how the world and society kind of messes with women and tends to, you know, we have some self-esteem issues sometimes. And so I didn't really have a lot of that growing up because of their upbringing. And so I'm probably the most unlikely beauty entrepreneur, truthfully, because I was not into that. I was, I was a little bit of a tomboy, um, and it was really when I got to be like in my later 20s, I was married at that point, divorced now, but I was married then. And I had, I was pregnant with my son. And I had just seen this movie that Chris Rock had produced and directed called Good Hair. And in the movie, he takes a soda can and he like puts it into a tub of hair relaxer and the can disintegrates within like 45 minutes. And it freaks me out. Like, oh my goodness, if this can is going to disintegrate in the stuff I'm using in my hair, what is it going to do to my body? And what is it going to do to the flesh of my child that's unborn at this point? So I set off on this journey to find products that were plant-based. And plant-based wasn't even like really a term back then. It's like 10 years ago. and I, But I was looking for things that were like vegan and natural and healthy, but also worked really well for my hair. So that was a challenge because back then we didn't have aisles and aisles and aisles of textured hair care products. We had, you know, maybe two products. You had to go to Brooklyn to get Carol's Daughter if you were wanting that. That was the only like mainstream brand anyone ever knew. Or you had to go to like some flea market in some like shady place to find like a, a little like grandmother in her kitchen making some stuff. Um, 
And so I decided that I was going to make these products myself. I'm like, how hard can it be? You know, it's olive oil and shea butter and some eggs and mayonnaise. Like, you know, throw it together and it'll make it work. And, you know, much to my surprise, that was not the case. <laughs> the eggs and the mayonnaise and all that stuff didn't really do much for my hair. Um, I went to the stores like Whole Foods and things like that. And I was able to find products that were safe and healthy and they had great ingredients but I used them on my hair and I looked like I had like a, a cotton ball on my head it was it was terrible I didn't like it at all so my mom is a master herbalist and so I called her up and I said mommy what can I put with like the stuff I have in my house to kind of make my hair have curl definition and really be shiny and not breaking and things like that so she gave me like a ton of suggestions and one of those led me down a rabbit hole to Morocco and in Morocco, there is this ingredient called Rasul clay. It's only found in this one very mountainous area of Morocco. So I sent off for it and I got it back. It took for weeks to come. And I started mixing it with, you know, um, deionized water and olive oil and um, coconut oil and all sorts of other, you know, really amazing healthy ingredients. And when I finally got the consistency right, it was literally like the first time in my life that I loved my hair. And I didn't, I don't think I even realized how much I hated my hair until I realized how much I loved it. You know, I think I just kind of always went through life like, well, this is my hair and this, I'm just like, you know, never going to have this like really long, really flowy hair that's not dry and not breaking. But then when I got the experience where it wasn't like that, it was like, whoa, you know? And I realized, like, I had hated my hair all my life from, like, the time when I first got a relaxer, which was in the third grade at age nine, until that point where I was, like, 28. And, um, you know, it was, like, this whole euphoric feeling that I had. So, it, I like a lot of, you know, women-owned brands and women-owned companies, even, you know, particularly beauty brands that we're talking about that, we are, women are so resourceful. You know, we're resourceful, we're resilient, we're diligent. We find solutions to products. We find solutions to problems where those solutions don't already exist. And we create products and services to solve those issues. And so, you know, my, my story in creating that is, is very similar to a lot of other, you know, women-led companies. But um, yeah, even then, it wasn't supposed to be a, a business. It was just supposed to be a product for myself. And then it eventually, you know, over time turned into a business and I was able to get a patent on my product, which made me the first black woman to own a patent on a product. Again, didn't set out to make wait, history wait, wait, or anything like wait. that. You're you're the first you were the first black woman to own a patent on a product? No. Oh. <laughs> no, not not any product in the world. Oh. A a um plant-based hair care product. Oh, so in the in the space of your of hair care, plant-based, Correct. you were the first. Correct. Wow, yes. that's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and that was in 2015 when that happened. So it was like two years after the company became an actual company. But even, like I said, when I was just making the products for myself, I started to have friends come over and family, and they started asking me, well, what products are you using? Because your hair's looking so good. Again, this is at the time when there's not a lot of resources for us. We're all just kind of winging it, and they're, like, looking for something to solve their issue. So Wait, I tell did them, you have oh, a full-time job during this? Was there I I guess, a whole career happening beside this? I did. I was actually the global digital communications director at Ford at that time. So I had a big, like, you know, hefty job, you know, at that point. I was, you know, married. I had a, my son who was um, at that point where we're talking about this in the story. He was like just born. He's relatively a newborn. Um, so I've concocted these products for myself and he's a newborn now. So I'm using them on his hair and everything's great. You know, I am in a, I'm in this like super horrible marriage and it's, 
abusive in, in all the worst ways. Um, but I was trying to, you know, make it work and, and all of that. But, you know, fast forward a little bit of time, about 18 months, I realized that this was not for me. I didn't grow up seeing this. I knew what love looked like. I knew this was definitely not what love looked like. And I knew that I was also raising a child who was going to see, who was eventually going to see this as his example of love. And um, I did not want him to grow up thinking this was normal. Even if in the back of his mind, he knew it was wrong. I didn't want him to think that, oh, you know, this is what mommy and daddy did. So this is how I react to the the, the woman or the man that I choose um, later on in life, you know. So I left as much for him as I did for me. And I, I made sure that I left before he would even remember any of this stuff happening. You know, one day we'll eventually talk about it. He'll ask questions and, and that's fine. But I didn't want that to be like his vision of a relationship. So, so I left uh, that. Can we just um, explore this a little bit more? Because that's that takes yeah. an enormous amount of courage, right, yeah. to... Um, to say that I'm, I'm done and then have the courage, especially, um, I would imagine, with an abuser. Um, there's mm-hmm. a whole level of other anxiety and fear, right? It's mm-hmm. not just ending a marriage that you're not into, right? It's ending a marriage that's um, unsafe. Um, yeah. Where do you think you got the courage to make that decision and walk away? Um, I think that, like I said, I grew up in a, in a household where I grew up in a two-parent household and it was very, you know, respectful between my parents and my my mom. It sounds like a weird word to use, but, (laughs) you know, I never saw them have, I never saw abuse, you know? So I I think that a lot of times, you know, how we, what our first visions of a relationship are supposed to be is kind of subconsciously what we kind of gravitate toward. I never saw that, you know? And so that wasn't something that I was used to, but then also... I'm very aware of my worth, you know, and um, the thing was, I did not want my marriage to fail. I didn't want to feel like a failure, partly because I also didn't want to be like this statistical single black mother, you know, and I I struggle with that a lot. Probably, I probably struggle with that more than I struggle with the idea of leaving him, um, because honestly, we got married in two, we got married in July of 2010. And honestly, by October, I knew that I didn't want to be in the marriage anymore. So it was very quick. Um, but I was, you know, pregnant at that point, And I was like, oh, I don't want to raise this. I don't want, you know, the statistics of like another, you know, fatherless child, you know, that, that kind of thing. So the psychology of that really screwed with me a lot. Went to therapy with my ex-husband. He stopped going to therapy. But luckily, I continued to go. And I remember asking the therapist, you know, how will I know when I'm truly going to leave. Because so many people leave and then they go back, you know? And she was like, you'll leave when you, in your mind and in your heart, have truly feel like you've exhausted all the possibilities of trying to make this work. Until then, you'll probably keep trying to make it work. But once you really feel that you've you've done everything that you can and you're, it's not reciprocated, that's when you'll leave. And that's exactly when I left. Um, it's like, I can't fight this on my own. You know, you don't, it, it was like, not only was he abusive, he was also a narcissist. So it made it really hard because it was like, you do, you're doing what you're doing. Like you're verbally abusive, physically abusive and all that, but you feel like it's justified. And then you try to make me feel bad as if I've done something to warrant it. And I just knew like, none of this was right, you know? Um, and I do, I feel, I have such a thing that's near and dear to my heart. Um, when I, I find out about, you know, women who are, 
going through these sorts of things because people always say, well, you know, she's stupid or she's weak for staying with him. And it's like, luckily, I was I was very lucky that I was the breadwinner of my family because the majority of the time when women don't leave a abusive situation, it's not because they're dumb. It's not because they're stupid or because they're, you know, glutton for punishment. It's because honestly, most of the time the abuser holds the financial reins. Usually the abuser is the controller. And so he can he or she controls you know, the finances. So it's really hard to like leave and pull yourself up by your bootstraps if you don't have any money. You know, how are you supposed to do that? So a lot of times these these scenarios are exacerbated and they stay purely for financial for financial reasons. Um, and so I was, like I said, very lucky that I, I was not in that situation. But I could have been had I not, you know, had the job that I had, not had the, the education, the, the, you know, the diplomas and all that stuff that I have to be able to, you know, make... The, have the career that I did. So when, when this was going yeah. on, I guess after July, um, were you able to tell anybody? Like, were you able to tell friends at work or your family? No. This I did. Secret. You know what? I did. I told one person at work, mm-hmm. and I could not tell my family because I knew that he would probably not live long. <laughs> and so I didn't want my dad to know. My dad's like an old school dad, you know, like you mess with my daughter, you got to answer to me kind of thing. And I did not tell him. Um, I also did not tell my mother because my mother's kind of like the same way. Um, and my sister already didn't like him. So I didn't want to tell her and make her right. <laughs> so I did tell someone, I didn't tell any of my closest friends, but I did tell someone at work. And... You know, I would tell her everything that was going on. Some days I had to take off of work because I had bruises on my arm. Or he never hit me in my face because, you know, that would be too visible. But he would, like, you know, uh, he would, like, grab my arm really, really tightly. Or I remember one time he threw me across the room and I had, like, a bruise hanging on my back. And um, I told my coworker what was going on. And I remember that she, this is, like, over time, over weeks of me telling her this. One day I wasn't at work. And the ad, the administrative assistant to the um, to our boss asked, you know, where's Gwen today? And the person that I had confided in said, oh, she's not here. I hope she's okay because, you know, she's going through, like, some abuse with her husband. And it was just like, why? You know, I confided this in you. I did not obviously want anyone else to know. So... Long story short, she, so obviously the admin is like, oh, what's going on? And so now the person I've confided in is like telling all the story. And she's like, yeah, so he like hits her and he's like really abusive and she's filing for a divorce and blah, blah, blah. So I get to work the next day and I get called into the boss's office with the admin And they sit me down and they're like, listen, do we need to like lock the doors? Is your ex-husband going to come up here? And or not, he wasn't my ex, he was still my husband. He's like, is he going to come up here and, um, you know, attack anybody? And it just became like this whole thing that it didn't have to be. Um, Not I mean, not to mention how embarrassing it was (laughs) that my boss um, and the whole office now knew that I was dealing with this like super abusive relationship, Um, though I was, you know, actively working to get out of it. Um, and, you know, getting the divorce papers filed and making sure that whatever assets I had remained mine and all that kind of stuff. It was just like, it was just like, I just got totally betrayed by this woman who I confided a lot in. So, yeah. Yeah. And I would imagine that for um, 
people going through a similar situation, they're, they're terrified to tell um, the truth for exactly that reason. Mm-hmm. Um, and then the other reasons why you didn't tell your family, right? Which was they um, anticipate that kind of retribution. Um, I'm sorry that you had this yeah. experience. I'm grateful that you're sharing it with our listeners because you know that you were not alone, right? This happens. Absolutely. Um, and I, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm sure statistics during COVID are, you know, really making this much more difficult for people already in very difficult situations. For sure. Uh, with all the insecurity and financial insecurity that's happening in the world. Um, yeah. I guess let's lighten it up and talk about hair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm really excited. I'm really happy, though, to talk about that, though, because I think that you know, representation matters in all aspects. And a lot of times, like you said, you feel like alone. And I'm at this point, like a pretty much an open book. Um, and I talk about it whenever the question comes up. And, you know, I, there's one woman in my community of customers um, about two years ago, she was in a similar situation. And this, my group on Facebook, it's about 11,000 women. Um, and she was kind of, we were her confidants. So she was giving us the play-by-play, telling us what was happening, how she was trying to get out of the situation. And we actually, the group actually on their own came together and raised about $5,000 for her. Um, and, um, they all sent it in like the, like a secure place that I had set up, sent it, they all donated money. And then we then, you know, sent that money to her and she was able to leave that situation, move out of state because she now had the finances to do so, um, her and her children, and so she, like, she was in California. I think she's in, like, Texas somewhere now um, because we were able to come to her aid. Um, so I, I'm, I'm excited that, you know, I always say, like, we are just, we're more than just hair. You know, we're, we're a community. We're a sisterhood. Um, if you need it, we got you, you know, kind of thing. And I just, I just know how hard it is to leave if you don't beyond the psychology of it, you know, the, the, the bare bones finances. It's so hard to leave, especially if you have children. How are you supposed to raise these kids and you can't even feed them, you know? So anytime that I can help, I try to make sure I do. And also share the story, because like you said, you know, it's important for people to know that they're not alone. And before I, I know we're going to move on, but I just want to share this too. For me, in my mind, it was like, this is not this, this kind of thing doesn't happen to me. You know, like I, gra- I went to high school, I graduated, you know, like you said, you know, I went to high school and college at the same time, graduated valedictorian in my high school, went to college, got my degree, got my master's degree. Then I got married. Then I had my kid. Like I did everything in the right order, quote unquote. And then it's, I was still in this situation, you know? So it does not matter like what area of life you come from, what positioning you're in, if you do all the quote-unquote right things, or you do some of the quote-unquote wrong things, you know, it doesn't matter who you are, you can be in a similar situation. So I love, I I don't love ha- having had the story, but I love being able to share the story um, to let people know that you said, like, they're not alone. Right, because you you said what was, like, keep, keeping you uh, working towards solving this in the marriage was that you don't want to be statistic, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. you were almost intellectualizing the situation, right? By trying to undo undo what's happened before before mm-hmm. you in some ways, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And um, I, I think that's really telling for how uh, deeply you wanted this to work and be safe for you and your yeah. child. Um, and I can imagine that, you know, kind of standing on that fence between leaving and becoming the statistic and staying and, um, you know, enduring this pain and torture. Um, you know, now that you look back on it, is looking at the statistic really that important? Um, not at all. 
No, no, no. That's like you care, like me caring about what other people think, you know? It was even at a point where I, when I finally did leave and I would be out with my son, I still wore my wedding ring because I didn't want people to think I was a single mother, you know? Um, and I eventually got over that. But I that, t- that took therapy. That took, you know, me going to see someone, talking to someone. And anybody who's in a situation like that, I always advise, like, go see somebody. Go talk through it, you know, so you can... You can be the person you're supposed to be. You're not stuck in this zone of still technically being abused, even though you're not even with the abuser anymore. Right. So there's, um, I wonder, like, are you a, like a recovering perfectionist? Um, is that sort of like a, in something inside I, of you? Maybe a little bit. I, I am a, um, definitely a type A. And I, I, I never really thought about myself as a perfectionist, but I don't like mediocrity at all. Oh, it grinds my gears. So, yes, I might be. <laughs> I call myself a recovering perfectionist. During COVID, it's been hard because, like, everything's out of whack. Nobody can work a regular work day. Kids are, mm-hmm. you know, need to be fed. Uh, meanwhile, I haven't fed my kids lunch today, but the, they're, they're <laughs> 9 and 12. They can find the snacks. Yeah. Um, you know, it's been really hard to unravel that um, and stay recovering, you know, mm-hmm. when things are kind of feeling a little out of control. Uh, but I'm yeah. super grateful for you sharing your personal story. And uh, I really do think it's going to help our listeners um, because, you know, you were not alone in this situation. And, um, you know, I think the truth of, you know, you were working this corporate job and only one person knew about this in your organization, right? So, like, we might yeah. all know people going through this and we just are unaware of it. For sure. Um, so, you know, before we close out on um, the recording, um, you know, uh, there's just been so much going on. 2020 has been a really interesting year. Um, I know um, fans of the show have been uh, writing and asking about how things have changed for your business during COVID. Um, and I'm curious to know if that's really like impacted your business at this stage. Yeah, COVID has um, been a challenge, but it's also been good for the business. Um, not good for the world, obviously, <laughs> but we have actually seen a surge in, in orders since COVID started. I mean, I attribute it to the fact that beauty supplies are closed or were closed. Um, salons were closed. People didn't have the option to go get their hair done at salons and nor did they have the option to go to their local, you know, Ulta or Whole Foods or, or Sally Beauty or and get products for themselves. So they were forced to buy online. Also because people were not going to work, you know, again, this is just a theory. I'm of the thought that, you know, they're potentially even more able to focus a little bit better on marketing messages that brands have because they're they're actually out looking for products. They're not as inundated. They're still receiving marketing messages, but they're actually actively looking for marketing messages, right? And so we saw about a 62% increase in orders during uh, COVID, especially when it first happened. It was just like, oh my goodness, how's this going to work? Because we actually had to shut down the warehouse and our fulfillment center because of COVID. We had people not working, so we had a skeleton crew and way more orders. So it was like, this is nuts. On top of that, there was a bottle shortage in the industry. So anyone who makes beauty products, I'm sure experienced it and may even still be experiencing it a little bit. The bottle shortage, you know, it, it was like people who were having to mark products out of stock because they didn't have any bottles. Not because they couldn't make the product, not because they were out of raw materials, just because they didn't have a freaking bottle. And um, I, you know, we know that a lot, a lot of large corporations were buying up the bottles that we would typically use for hand sanitizer and things like that. And, you know, if you're a supplier and you get an order for 300,000 bottles and then you got this other company over here ordering 3,000, 
you're going to take that $300,000 order, you know? It's just economics. And so I found us having to be really creative about how we manage this. Um, it would have been an in incredible shame to have a huge influx of orders and new customer acquisitions, but not be able to fulfill. So we, you know, started using some different bottles <laughs> for certain things, bottles that we would probably never use again. But it was just like, we got to get whatever we can get. And we even also started contacting some of our competitors to see if they had bottles. And some of them were so gracious to actually sell us their, their bottles at cost. They could have totally jacked up the price because I would have paid it because I needed bottles. Um, but we had people contact us as well, competitors of ours, asking, do you guys have, you know, gold, our caps are gold. So do you guys have like the gold shiny caps? Um, how much can you sell them to me for? And obviously we had to look out for ourselves as well. But if we had anything in excess, we sold it to them as well. So it was really kind of cool seeing um, these, you know, beauty industry competitors have to like put their egos aside so that we all could all survive. So that was really cool. Um, yeah, that that's kind of amazing that yeah. that happens. Um, and kudos to you and your peers for being able and willing to uh, kind of share share the resources. Yeah. Um, you know, my last question for you is around the topic of racial inequality. I'm curious to know um, what your fans are looking to you and, and your brand in terms of um, what kind of voice you bring to that, um, that movement. Yeah, well, one of our core principles at Naturalicious is that we believe in taking a stand. And so um, as a Black female founder, I am obviously affected by Black Lives Matter and um, everything going on in the everything going on in the world right now with um, George Floyd kind of being a catalyst to kicking all this stuff off. Um, but, you know, there are definitely racial disparities when it comes to all industries. Beauty is no different. Um, I'm excited to see some of the stores like Sephora take the you know 15% pledge and say that they're going to put um, founders of color on 15% of their, their store um, footprint. But I am very interested to see how they're going to support those businesses. Because it's one thing to get into a store, it's a whole other thing to stay in a store. And, you know, we have had retail retail partnerships where you know, customers go to the store, they can't even find it because the associate at the store doesn't know it's in the store, they don't know it exists, they don't know anything about it, um, and all of that. And so luckily, we have a very, very strong and loyal customer base who, if you go, if they go to a store and the store tells them that they don't have it, they actually go marching around the store to like find the product. And sometimes they even get the product, they find it and bring it to the associate and says, it's right here and then point them to it. And so like we have like our customer base almost like educating the stores, but that's the job of the retailer at, at the top, at the top, you know? And so just imagine all the people who are potentially going to a store and who are not part of like the ingrained community and they're just looking for a product and they get turned away. So if we are really going to, you know, dedicate 15% of, of um, our spaces in the retail stores to um, to brands of color or owned by women of color, we got to make sure that we're able to support them. So what is the plan for that? How are you going to make sure that your associates at all levels are trained? Because a lot of these stores have high turnover rates at the store level. So how are you going to ensure that they actually um, are able to sell through because it's the brand's job to take it's the brand's job to bring the traffic to the store it's the store's job to tell them where the stuff is so that they can buy it right and so if, if the brand is doing their job the store has to do their job as well 
Um, and that's such a good point, especially because, you know, for like a Sephora, it's um, even for the very big global companies, it's a huge heavy lift to um, support the business at, at, at a retailer like that, right? There's so much cost involved. There's so much manpower. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And um, if they're going to be introducing brands that are new to the Sephora space or even small indie brands, like they really need to like like incubate that relationship, right? Because yeah. it's it's so costly um, mm-hmm. and so extensive to just survive in those spaces. And yeah. um, you're right. I've, I've walked into these stores and I've asked for brands and I know we're sold at Sephora and they're like, no, we don't sell it here. I'm like, I, I had to do my own research on the phone <laughs> in front of the sales associate, exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. So, um, well, I think that you make a really good point and hopefully Sephora is listening to this. And yeah, they're going to hear your point of view on this. So awesome. thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with us today. This is such a great conversation. I'm grateful for your honesty um, and your, your wisdom. And I know our listeners are grateful too. Thanks for joining us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. And um, can I give a plug real quick? Yeah. Yeah. So thanks everyone for listening. If you want to find out more about Naturalicious products, make sure you go to naturalicious.net. And if that is... A little challenging to spell because I realized that it, you know, may not phonetically sound <laughs> like it's spelled. Um, you can go to savetimeonwashday.com and that will take you to our website. Cool. Well, and for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this interview with Gwen. Please follow us on Instagram at We're Brains East Beauty Podcast and subscribe to our series on iTunes. Um, thanks so much, Gwen. I appreciate this. Absolutely. Thanks so much, Jody. Have a great day. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Where Brains Meet Beauty with Jody Katz. Tune in again for more authentic conversations with beauty leaders.